Hey, I'll just an editor's note. We recorded this last Wednesday, the 30th, but we're putting it out on Monday, the 4th due to some technical difficulties. So hopefully our pop culture references aren't too out of date for you just yet. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on this week's show, I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Uh, It's going great, Kyle. So on this week's show, we're going to check in on the latest with rural broadband legislation. Uh, Brian Kemp ran for governor touting his agenda to help people in rural parts of our state. And both he and the House Rural Development Commission have zeroed in on broadband access as a key indicator of rural Georgia's economic potential. So we're going to check in on where that legislation's at. And I've got an interview uh, with Christy Swartz from EE News to share with you. She was in a committee hearing and, and knows the latest from on the ground under the gold dome about where all that is going Uh, then for our second topic this week we're going to discuss kemp's first budget the legislature spent last week in budget hearings and this week the budget continues to move through the legislative process Um, so we'll see where that is going and then finally uh, luke was at the state democrats convention over the weekend where the Democratic Party elected State Senator Nakima Williams to be the party's new chair, and a slate of young leaders got added to the party's leadership. So the kids are in charge, Luke. I don't know about that. You don't know about that? Well, Luke will tell us uh, exactly what happened at the convention over the weekend and what he thinks of the party's direction with a bunch of new folks running the show. Uh, But first, let's start with uh, this discussion around rural broadband legislation. And I want to start it out with the uh, interview that I had with Christy Swartz from E&E News. So Christy Swartz joined the podcast to discuss the latest on two pieces of rural broadband legislation designed to let some rural utility providers provide access to broadband. Uh, These bills are just one piece of the rural broadband puzzle, and we get into the role that telephone poles play in this discussion. Um, It's all a little wonky, but issues like these are really playing a large role in the future of rural Georgia's economy. So let's get to my interview with Christy Swartz. So we're now joined by Christy Swartz, a reporter at E&E News, to talk about the latest movement on rural broadband legislation under the Gold Dome. Uh, Christy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Carl. Thanks. Could you start by just telling us what problems in access to rural broadband legislators are trying to solve, and sort of how do they describe this problem to you and your reporting? Publicly, they talk about this as being an economic development issue. It's an issue for businesses, for farmers, for children trying to have better access to information, um, for education. They talk about young people growing up and leaving the area. It is not unique to Georgia. It has been in, this happens in rural communities across the nation. Um, What was surprising to me when these bills first came about was that I had written um, a long time about, uh, a long time ago about this topic, which had been typically called the digital divide. Um, And it was when I lived in North Carolina, which was more than, 15 years ago, um, just even when internet was getting started. And so my first reaction was, wow, that's still a thing. But it, but it really is. And what, what is happening is there's not the economies of scale to run out 
um, much much infrastructure out there. It's expensive um, for cable, for telephone. I mean, it will still be expensive for the electric cooperatives also, but it's, the issue's been kind of bubbling up, and they're trying to find a solution to it to get these essential communication services out to these communities. So on Monday, the House Economic Development and Tourism Committee heard two bills, House Bills 22 and 23, aimed at addressing rural broadband access issues. Um, can you describe these bills for us and, and what happened in committee on Monday? Sure. Um, they were they were very simple bills. And as we got through the committee, I picked up on that they were they were intended to be very simple um, for some reasons that I can get into for a minute. One basically was to open the door or ensure that the the rural telephone cooperatives had the opportunity to enter into the broadband market. Um, that that bill was much shorter. It was two pages and actually technically one if you add in all the all the definitions. Um, and it passed out of committee without any issue or incident. Um, and then the second one involved opening the door for the electric cooperatives. And basically, the state statute right now, it was just unclear. So it was to clarify that and give them the opportunity to do the same. There are some, what they, what lawmakers basically couched as consumer protections in both of the bills. It gets down to um, it gets down to a money issue getting into that they don't want the cooperatives to take money, uh, let's just say, from one bucket from, you know, what their, their basic primary service is, which would be to sell telephone um, and or electricity, and then using that to prop up their their broadband service. They want to make sure that those buckets of money are kept separate. Also, if there's if there's a person, if there's a home or a business that they now get these broadband services and for some reason they're unable to pay that bill, the EMC, for example, cannot threaten or take action and say, I'm going to cut off your electric service. Again, they want to keep these things very separate. One of the points that I want to make, there were a couple of of lawmakers that really wanted to drive home. They really wanted a commitment from the EMCs that they would be offering broadband service. It was one of those where they just said, look, you know, our our constituents in parts of rural Georgia need this service, so can we get you to commit today to do that? And that's not what this bill does. And in fact, some of the EMCs, which I've talked to, and I want to make it very clear, it's not been, it's not been many, but it's been some who've been willing to talk to the media, it's that they they want the they want the option, they want the option to to even study it. They want the option to put together an economic analysis, which is needed, um, and then go from there. Some are shying away from it. Some want to go in, you know, full force. Some want the opportunity to partner with another company that um, you know can can help them along the way with, with the technology and other things. It's just a matter of opening the door to them so they have the option. But it doesn't mean that all of rural Georgia is going to be lit up with broadband service overnight. In fact, it's going to probably take a while. At issue here in, in sort of this broader discussion around rural 
broadband is, you know, the state is not setting up some kind of structure where they're going to provide broadband on their own. They're trying to create incentives for existing players in the market to provide broadband. And, and the EMCs that we're talking about today, it, it sounds like they would join the market as a new provider of broadband. One of the issues that keeps popping up that I, I've, I saw you tweet about it, I've seen some other discussion about it, is this issue of telephone poles and connecting broadband equipment to them. Um, can you just describe sort of what telephone poles have to do with any of this? Sure. This is, um, it's, it's a wonky issue, but it's very important. Um, and as a former telecom reporter, you know, there's this one part of me that says, oh, wow, you know, here, here we go again. Um, and I don't mean that in any negative tone. My, my point is that anytime, anytime you get into a policy discussion that involves um, broadly, you know, what we want to call these services that are anywhere from telephone, cable, um, and electricity that involves the infrastructure of poles and wires, you have this, this discussion. And so basically what is, what is happening is, I mean, if you, if you look out your window or if you're driving down the street and, you know, and have a second to look up, you're, you're seeing a, you're seeing a pole. Um, it's owned by, could be owned by one of the power companies. It could be owned by one of the telephone companies. So they're owning that pole. They've got some wires strung along, but of course there are other wires and there are other pieces of equipment that are attached, that are attached to it. So if that equipment is owned by another company, the, the price that, you know, that, that price is, is set by a contract, by a business arrangement, and that's something that's, that's worked out in advance. Basically, the company that owns the pole, the other one is coming to them saying, hey, can we lease space on your pole? And they work out a contract. Now, the challenge here, and I again, I'm trying to tell this without really getting into the weeds, but the challenge here is when, when the EMCs get involved, they are exempt from a, um, from a federal rule that, that involves how um, pole attachments and those rates are set. So they, they are charging a different amount. So if you talk to the cable and telephone companies as they basically testified on Monday and have been doing this all along, they, and again, these are, my, these are not my words, these are theirs. I mean, they, they allege that the, the EMCs can charge whatever they want, that their rates are so much higher and it's very significant and so they again allege that the EMCs are being a barrier to entry. If you talk to and I and I reached out to um, the cooperatives for this because they they didn't um, they weren't questioned a whole lot about this on Monday. So I wanted to make sure I had their comments as well. Um, you know they they charge they charge amounts that help them, you know, recover for their cost of service and basically outlined a number of different contracts that they just renewed with others who were leasing their poles. And the point is to just say, well, you know, we've, we've re-upped these contracts. Clearly these business deals are working. So they, they maintain that they're, not, that they're not doing anything wrong. And that's, that's, as, that's as broad and as, as boiled down as I, as, as I can get, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so House Bills 22 and 23, they moved out of 
the Economic Development and Tourism Committee and they moved on to the Rules Committee. What comes next for these bills? Are they likely to pass the House and the Senate, do you think? And should we be looking for more action on rural broadband this legislative session? Well, so the the challenge the challenge is, I mean, the yeah, the short the short answer is I, I asked someone this the other day, um, the the issue of poll attachment still needs to be addressed. My guess is that that is what is going to happen in the Senate. Now, what really sparked the debate on Monday is one, it you know it was not it was not in this bill. And again, what I was gleaning from that was that they wanted to keep these bills very simple so they can so they can pass through to meet the intent of opening up the broadband market and and trying to provide some other options for people in rural Georgia to get high-speed internet. So they don't want it to get bogged down in the weeds of the poll attachments, which has dragged down these bills in the past. And that's exactly what happened last year when the bill was in the Senate. So you had lawmakers saying, you know, I mean, they were they were clearly very frustrated with the representatives um, all all across the board, from cable, from telephone, from the EMC, saying, you know, look, how, I mean, how long have you all been negotiating this? Can't you get it figured out? We need something, you know. If you want to give us a pull attachment bill, then bring a pull attachment bill. Um, the EMCs do not want that as part of this bill, and. My take on that is you can't you can't have one without the other. I mean, they you can't you can't pass these bills without having something that kind of designates a template for how they're going to work out that arrangement. Which again is a, it's a private business arrangement, but what they're what the cable and telecom guys are looking for also is some sort of a some sort of a template there. So I that 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 has got that has got to be addressed. Um, and again, this was a House panel on Monday. They clearly were very frustrated and saying, you know, this has happened before. We pass these bills out. They get to the Senate. They get dragged down, and then they, you know, and then they die. And you've got a couple of things going on here. They've been they've been at this issue now for three years. They've had a host of study committees on it to finally say, look, we've actually got these bills. They're not complicated. Like, let's get them through. There's also federal money on the table um, that at least the EMCs can apply for. I'm, I'm, I'm not aware about the telecoms. They might be able to, but that at least the EMCs can apply for. And that's that bucket of money is going to be available this spring. So there's a sense of urgency of trying to get it out this session also. Um, so I'm, I'm expecting at some point that that – these bills are going to get are going to get more weedy because even if there's a separate bill on poll attachments, they're going to have to marry the two at some point. And any other issues uh, worth keeping an eye on as it relates to this rural broadband push? That's I mean that's that's a good question. It, it looks like, and I'm less I'm less familiar with this, but it looks like there are, there are some state initiatives on you know how there could be some revenue to help give these you know give give this initiative. A boost, um, and as I said, I'm less I'm less familiar with this. What you know, really, what this boils down to, as I said before, it's the it's the economies of scale. It's very expensive 
to get these services out. And again, broadband still is, say, it's it, it's in that category that's not like basic electric, water, and and sewer. That is an essential service. However, I think you know any anybody any one of us can argue to the to the contrary that it doesn't really fall in that bucket. That it absolutely is an essential service to education. To, to business, um, to functions, to hospitals. I mean, it would it would help rural hospitals. That that's you know those are some of the arguments. And again, I mean, it was something that that I you know we we take these things for granted in in, in metro areas. Um, you know, so like I said, it wasn't even something that was on my radar screen because I thought I thought it had been it had been fixed. So we'll I mean I'll I'll definitely be looking to see what happens, um, how quickly. This bill passes the House if it does. Um, I don't have any. No one's really talked to me about about that um, on how quickly it could pass. But again, I mean, they're going to have to shore up the the poll attachment issue. Um, and you could definitely tell the frustration from the lawmakers. I mean, again, for the for the lobbyist side, they definitely said, "Well, we we've been talking and negotiating." But I think there's a level of frustration of saying, "Well." You know, are, are you guys going to keep talking this to death, and you're you're really gumming up the works here? So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I my gut tells me this is going to go, this is going to run the full session, just because these gummy issues like this that also are kind of out of the. Um, it's a high profile one, but on one hand, it's it's not. Um, you know, I think if you talk to other reporters, they really talk about some other big hot button issues that are that are on the table and this is kind of just below that. So those this this I can see really kind of just getting caught up and held um in the other chamber for one reason or another until the end of session. Well it's something we'll be following till the end of session if we have to. Uh but Christy, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate your time today too. All right. So thank you to Christy for taking a few minutes to keep us up to date about what's going on with rural broadband legislation. Um, Luke, another piece of this discussion has to do with raising the revenue necessary to fund some of these rural broadband expansions. As Christy and I discussed, the project of increasing access to rural broadband in Georgia is not some state-run program where the state of Georgia is going to suddenly become a broadband supplier. They are working within the existing market and trying to encourage new players to come into the market to get private suppliers to deliver broadband in places where they currently aren't. But one of the things that they need to do that is they need state revenue to help subsidize that deployment. And On Tuesday evening, Brian Kemp told GPB News that he opposed what's quickly becoming known as the Netflix tax. It's a proposed tax that came out of the Rural Development Commission that would increase a, that would create a new sales tax on streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, all of the stuff you watch on online, along with digital purchases like ebooks, music, a whole bunch of digital services that currently aren't taxed would be taxed. This proposal was pretty heavily opposed in a recent AJC poll. Only 28% of people supported an increase in a communications or Netflix tax and 66% of respondents opposed it. What do you think about Kemp coming out of the gate opposing this tax and how it may impact 
the agenda on increasing access to rural broadband. We're so early in this conversation that I think taking anything off the table isn't a great idea or a great move by uh, Governor Kemp or any other state leader. You know, it's really an important job of state leaders to convince the public that some, you know, sacrifices are necessary. And we've been talking about the Rural Development Commission for a pretty long time. And we consistently talk about how they haven't done anything or got anything done. It's very underwhelming. Right. It's very underwhelming. And so, like, this is definitely turning into a trend with Governor Kemp that I hope doesn't continue, where he's like, we're going to cut taxes and dramatically raise the salaries of teachers. We're going to fund rural broadband, but we're not going to actually get the funds. And, you know, at a certain point, you have to, like, put up or shut up. And it's like, do you have these budget priorities and are you willing to go out there and convince the public that this is worth spending money on and worth being taxed over or are you not and they're really trying to have it both ways and i you know i'm fine if they make the decision that it's not worth raising the taxes over but i really don't like the uh element of this where they act like there's some other place the money can come from because right now we don't have the money to do this Yeah, like the things that they've been able to do so far, you know, Christy and I talked about allowing the state or the the state allowing EMCs to provide rural broadband. It's like they've done a good job of considering how you create good structures that overcome the barriers to deploying broadband right now. But it is a revenue issue. Yeah, I can understand why this is a difficult tax to sell, particularly for Republicans right now. Republicans are worried about their collapse in the suburbs that they had during this last election. And this tax would primarily be paid by people living in Atlanta, people living in the state's urban centers, and people living out in the suburbs. Because by definition, the tax is seeking to raise money to get internet service to people in rural Georgia, so that they can then have access to services like Netflix. So like, if you're living in rural Georgia right now, you can't pay the tax because you're not going to have a Netflix subscription because your internet's not fast enough. So like, you know, for people in, in suburban Atlanta who would have their taxes go up and then basically see no benefit from it because the whole goal is to give internet to someone who lives somewhere that you don't. I can see why this one is a tough sell, but it is, you know, this I think is repeatedly sort of like you said, Luke, the problem where these things require raising money and spending money to create new things, to do things. And, this political culture that has been created in Georgia of the state should not tax you, we should limit taxes as much as possible. And when given the option, governments at the smallest, most local level should then decide with the people who live in that area to tax themselves. So you see this on education with East Blasts, you see this in transit expansions with counties deciding to join MARTA or deciding to raise their own sales taxes to fund transportation projects. We've created this political culture that this is the way you raise tax money to do things, and it leaves behind communities that have a hard time raising their own tax money. And so I think this does, you kind of have to find find a way to shift the conversation back to having statewide priorities, like having everyone in the state have access to reliable broadband internet service. And that's something that we all pay into. 
in some larger form of tax instead of this sort of community by community. If you can raise it and pay for it yourself, then you can do it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, that's the governor's job is to go out there and convince everybody that this is the thing that needs to be done. And so for Kemp to throw out a solution that's pretty reasonable and, you know, really follows the model of other uh, state funded projects like, you know, like the the gasoline tax funds roads. So why doesn't, you know, the tax on Netflix and other Internet services fund Internet expansion? It seems to make sense to me. And, you know, I mean, they should do some clever legislating here. And if they're worried that the majority of people paying this tax are going to be in areas that already have the Internet, you know, expand the legislation so that after, you know, rural broadband is accomplished that it can be funded to increase speeds in urban areas uh there's options to make people feel like they're going to get something out of this you know one of the other things i think we've sort of consistently seen is the problems in rural georgia are described in really stark ways they're really big problems and in governor kemp's state of the state he said that while Governor Deal had overseen a massive economic expansion and recovery from the Great Recession. At times, it still felt like the Great Recession in rural Georgia. And the problems there seem very big and and like they would require very large solutions. And instead, uh, today on Wednesday, the day that we're recording, uh, Senator Brandon Beach from Alpharetta, who is uh, challenging Lucy McBath in Georgia 6, he uh, had a press conference proposing the Rural Georgia Jobs and Growth Act. And Luke, if I said a legislator uh, in a party that has been focused on rural issues in its last election was introducing a bill called the Rural Georgia Jobs and Growth Act, what do you think it would be about? I would think, I'm going to go on a limb here, that it would be about rural Georgia jobs and growth. Yeah, like big ideas to create jobs, even if even in a conservative lens, right? Yeah, I, I would I would think that. So you want to know what his bill's about? I mean, I guess it's about something other than that. It's about legalizing horse racing in the state of Georgia. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Brandon Beach is from Atlanta, so I, I imagine he just thinks there's horse races going on in, you know, the rural parts of the state all the time, and he's just trying to, you know, finally bring them into the light. Yeah, I don't know how many dirt roads he's ever been on in his life. Now, this, he is pitching legalizing horse racing in the state of Georgia as a big economic boon for rural Georgia. And he's not wrong. That would be a new industry in the state. It could have a lot of, you know, like the concept here is having racetracks in rural Georgia that are these big multi-use facilities. And the, the whole sport of horse racing has a lot of related jobs that come about because of it. You got to raise the horses. There's all kinds of supplies and inputs into how you do this, but it's one industry. Another example is the the House Rural Development Committee put out their recommendations in December, and, one, and the first recommendation that they gave was basically changing regulatory requirements to create a farm winery industry. So you describe rural Georgia as having these catastrophic economic problems, and then you offer up solutions where we're going to legalize horse racing and we're going to let farmers sell wine and all these like little sort of nickel and dime solutions for a problem that you say is worth $20. 
Yeah, I want to be fair. Like, these are not terrible ideas. I mean, there's a legitimate claim that horse racing could really do some wonders for the economies of the places where like the bigger tracks end up popping up. Um, and I have you know far less concerns about horse racing than I do casinos. Um, but you know, and, and again, like the winery thing, probably not a bad idea, but I agree with you that like compared to the amount of problems that rural Georgia is having, this is pretty small potatoes, you know, and you see this throughout, the recommendations from the Rural Council for 2019, you have the winery issue, you have $5,000 grants for blight control, prioritized for cities with fewer than 2,500 people. So if you've got a main street in an old town that has some blighted buildings in it, you can get small grants to clean that up. They've, they're reducing the standards on the quality jobs tax credit uh, to basically make that tax credit fit in to the economic realities of rural Georgia, but it also basically lowers the expectations of what kind of jobs you can create and how many you need to create to get a tax credit. Um, and then a lot of sort of small ball solutions on healthcare, this certificate of need debate that we've touched on before, but it's basically a minor change in hospital regulations that matters a lot to hospitals, but doesn't really matter very much to patients. Increasing the rural hospital tax credit that I have railed against as being a uh, giveaway to hospitals that doesn't provide health coverage for anybody. You know, it's just all of these little things that I just, I don't see, we come back to this over and over again about this being a legacy item for House Speaker Ralston. And this is, I think, either the second or third batch of recommendations that we've seen. And I just, every time I'm just so underwhelmed by the progress that they're making. What are there? Are there things, Luke, that you know, bigger, bigger ideas that you think should be on the table here that Democrats should be offering? I mean, Demo one, Democrats need to be offering plans, even if Kemp and the Republicans were throwing out spectacular plans, because, you know, everything is, uh, you know, the, the whole theory that Republicans uh, follow is that, you know, competition makes everything better. So having uh, more competition of ideas, I think, is a great idea for government. Uh, that being said, though, I'm hoping that we can see some people follow the league of uh, Abrams's campaign and other Democrats across the country of focusing on green jobs. Uh, it's something that we've talked about a lot here, but Georgia is a state, you know, practically tailor-made to have an impressive green economy if it wanted to. We have a lot of open fields and a lot of sunshine, so, you know, solar energy is definitely something we could uh, invest in heavily, would provide a lot of jobs, and would... Uh, help the state uh, lower its, you know, uh, dirty energy burden. So I think that would be a great thing to do. Again, Medicaid expansion would do more than any of these other proposals to to keep rural hospitals open. So it's just, you know, I, I think I think part of our frustration is the fact that there are some really big, obvious things that need to be done. And that I think for mostly political reasons, the Republicans don't bring them up in these rural development plans because i mean just looking at the economic benefits it would bring the state to invest in green energy republicans have to know that would be a good idea but i feel like it's you know georgia and i have to you know give credit where credit's due georgia republicans are like significantly better than federal republicans when it comes to doing things just to screw the libs but 
Like, I kind of feel like some of the, like, lack of big ideas comes from that mentality of that, like, we can't do things that progressives will like. And I, I, I don't know if it's that or just a lack of uh, imagination or worse, just a lack in the belief of the power of government to affect good in some situations. And that that's why their ideas are just significantly smaller scale, because really the government's kind of irrelevant to any of these plans. Now, I guess the the frustration here is that, you know, we had this conversation in the 2018 election. Stacey Abrams lost. Um, she put all these ideas on the table, Medicaid expansion, big investments in green jobs. Kemp's vision was a lot smaller and a lot less specific. Um, and it was a close race and Abrams contests that she lost. But, you know, the rest of the state has sort of accepted that the outcome was that Kemp won. And so like, you know, is is part of the problem here that there just isn't a desire outside of this podcast for these big ideas that people don't see state government as a tool for revitalizing the economic health of rural Georgia and for for tackling big problems in our state? Twig at us, listeners. Are we alone? Are we the only people that want to see big ideas? It's, uh, it's me, you, and Tim Denson, and I think that might be it. Maybe, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't know. Because um, you know, really, like speaking quite honestly, Brian Kemp's been kind of timid as far as like what he wants to do as governor, he doesn't, I don't really feel like there's some big proposal he wants to do, but so I, like the only big thing that he keeps talking about is the $3,000 teacher raises, which is great. Like I don't want to criticize him on that. I think that's a great idea. I think Georgia needs it um, desperately. And, you know, kind of ironically that raise is probably the project that he could do to help rural Georgians the most. That's how is, it strikes me. Yeah, and, like, it's funny because they're not even talking about it from that angle. But, like, yeah, like, being a teacher is a good job and you need good teachers all around the state. And an extra $3,000 definitely would help attract people, I think. Um, so I just, I find it, you know, weird because, like, even Governor Deal, like, had, um, you know, reforming the QBE formula and doing criminal justice reform and, you know, he can't really want to, but, you know, at, right after he got reelected, they did the transportation bill. So it's just like, it seemed like they had bigger things they wanted to do in that administration. And I don't, may, you know, maybe it's like he's a new governor, cut him a break. But like, I don't know. I just like, I don't feel that like same scale of ambition from this administration yet. Yeah, it's a much more a callback, I think, to Sonny Perdue. Um, when I talked to Jay Bookman at the end of last year, I went back through a bunch of his old columns and read a bunch of ones from early in the Purdue administration. And uh, they used to kind of make these cracks about Purdue being uh, he he was invisible. He was like never out in public and he didn't really put his uh, his name on any big initiatives. And so at least for right now, I think that that is where Kemp is. I, I think it's a conscious political choice for him, though, because he seems to be proposing things in almost all the areas that are pretty agreeable between Democrats and Republicans. Um, and so I think he recognizes that he only run, won this race by what, like 50,000 votes. And so he's, he's doing nothing objectionable right now. And, and I do want to give him credit for the teacher raises. I actually think that this is a big component of a rural development strategy because 
you know, this is recognizing this on teacher raises and not recognizing this on healthcare may be the most frustrating thing to me because public services like schools and healthcare are big job drivers in rural areas because you don't have a lot of private investment. You don't have a lot of private companies there, or they only come every once in a while, and they've been closing faster than they've been opening. Well, you know, maybe, may, you know, I mean, there's another thing, too, on, on that front. And Brian Kemp, at least so far, seems to be willing to do something that Governor Deal was not in the sense that he is actually seeking a Medicaid wa- waiver. Now, we've sort of discussed that we expect we will find the proposal probably pretty objectionable and we'll think there's a lot of problems with it. But the fact that he's even seeking a waiver is progress on the healthcare issue. And so, and maybe we'll be surprised. Maybe it won't be as bad. Uh, but I, I think maybe, maybe there is this recognition that that's going to be a big fight and he's trying to hold his capital for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's, you know, I think we're at a, at a position now where it's, it's tough to offer judgment on both the Medicaid waiver and in his direction broadly um, because it is so early. But, you know, I just come back to this idea of like, we have a very powerful governor system and the governor is probably by far the most visible person in state government. And, you know, I bet if you did a poll of the state and asked them to name who the governor was or even show a picture of Brian Kemp and say, what what job does this guy have that is prominent? Like maybe forty percent of people in the state would know. Um, so like, I have more faith in the fine people of Georgia. I'm sure it'd be at least fifty five. At least fifty five. <laughs> I would hope all the people that voted for him would know, but <laughs> you yeah. never know. Um, so like, he I think alone sort of carries the mantle of rallying the state around division. And when you don't take advantage of that bully pulpit as a governor. I think you leave a lot on the table. And so, you know, it's early. We're not being too hard on you. It's only legislative day seven. Yeah. We're not being too hard on you, but like. Do something. Do something. (laughs) Yeah. My worst fear is that he's just waiting for Super Bowl Sunday to pass. And then he's just going to go like full blown red meat. Like, (laughs) well, just everything crazy. (laughs) Well, this, did you see this in the jolt? This uh, was an informal direction given to the Republican caucus to not file any bills that would garner negative headlines until after the Super Bowl. And only one person, uh, State Rep. Casey Carpenter, seemed to ignore that with a a bad riffer bill that we can get into later. But um, for the most part, everybody seems to be holding their fire. And yeah, we will see if if, uh, um, if it gets a little crazy after uh, the Rams and the Patriots leave town. I'm going to put my money on yes. I'm going to put my money on no, but I'm feeling optimistic. Well, define crazy. Are you, are you, I think there's going to be crazy legislation proposed. Now it might not pass, but I think there's going to, I think they've been holding back. Yeah, I could definitely see proposals. I think that the close election outcome and Speaker Ralston taking pretty firm positions on things in advance of the legislative session starting on things like RIFRA and on things like constitutional carry that there is a recognition there that those sorts of bills and bad headlines are not going to do Republicans any favor right now. Let's uh, transition into our second topic here and talk a little bit about the budget. The budget is also maybe equally small in its vision. Um, 
So last week, the legislature was not in session for any official legislative days, but they were there for budget hearings where uh, lawmakers heard testimony from agency heads, from the governor, from people in the executive branch about the budget request for the year. Um, And then the budget, they have the budget hearings, and then it moves through the process. Um, An important thing to know about the budget that has been kind of standard in recent years, particularly with somewhat slow revenue growth for the state after the Great Recession, is that every year when you sit down to make a new budget, most of your revenue is already spoken for. Because we basically have um, automatic spending on things like our education system, our colleges, our Medicaid program, other healthcare expenses like the state employees health benefit plan. We have set expenses, set money we basically spend for road construction, and a lot of it is tied to the growth in our state. So we we're a growing state. We have more people moving here. So our budget grows every year, but it probably doesn't really grow relative to like a per person spending amount. We're just spending more because we have more people. So this year, 95% of the money in Brian Kemp's uh, 2020 fiscal year budget proposal goes to either all of the automatic spending increases because we're a growing state or to his $3,000 raise for teachers. So we're only talking about 5% of the budget that is somewhat debatable during these budget hearings. So Luke, the budget is actually one of the hardest things that we talk about. There's a lot of interesting individual items within the budget, but it's sort of hard to piece together a narrative out of the entire budget as a whole. What what like matters to you about a state's budget? I know how we talk about federal budgets as a way to show like what a president cares about and the ways that Congress changes that budget shows how what they care about. But as you just pointed out, 95% of our budget is basically mandated. And since Georgia has to have a balanced budget, we're only playing with like 1.4-ish billion dollars, which I mean, that is a lot. But Georgia's a big state. Georgia's like the eighth biggest state in the country. And so that money doesn't go all that far. And I think, I, I you know, from, from Kemp's budget, I take two things. You know, one, the fact that he did put in a pay increase for teachers shows that he was serious about that proposal and that's important to him. Uh, he didn't hit the number that he was talking about on the campaign trail, but, you know, he made progress on it. So to me, that shows that that was something he really wanted to do. And then it also just, I think it says a lot about the state that we're okay with the idea that 95% of our funding is basically going to be uh, predetermined and we're just kind of keeping the state on autopilot. So, you know, other states run in different ways, but the the sense that I've kind of gotten, you know, since the deal administration, and it seems like Kemp's administration is is at least starting out on this trend, is there's not a lot of discussion about doing new things. There's a lot of discussion about, like, playing within the existing boundaries of what we have been doing. And so I, I think there is this sense to me, at least, that the state sort of is is on autopilot and plans on doing no more than it currently is doing. Yeah, I think it I think it connects our conversation in the first topic and our conversation in this topic. If if the state was tackling big problems, you would see big new line items in the budget. 
And so the fact that we don't is it's, it's sort of the illustration of our frustration about the lack of movement on, on big issues. I, I think that, w- I mean, it's difficult because to me, it seems like they are unwilling to have the conversation that it might be worth it to raise taxes even a little bit for some of the priorities that they have and that they feel that their electorate is really pushing them to lower taxes. And so where we end up is at this status quo where they just keep things the same most of the time. And I think that's a, a, I wouldn't go so far as say a dangerous place to be, but it's definitely a, a, a sad place to be because it just makes me feel like the state is going to stagnate and not be able to address any of the issues it has because we're just, you know, driving the bus forward. Um, so we're going to continue to follow the budget as it goes through this process. Um, and, you know, there's obviously interesting line items in here. Uh, Kemp spending on school safety is a pretty big line item for this budget, given the small amount of funding left to allocate to new activities. Um, although that that is going into the amended 2019 budget instead of the 2020 budget. So that is money that is going out the door almost as soon as the legislature can pass that little budget. Um, and then, you know, Brian Kemp stuck to a lot of his campaign promises in this budget, money for uh, half a million dollars for new anti-gang activities and databases and things like that. Um, Like, you know, he did, I guess one thing that we can commend the governor as we leave this topic is his priorities that he ran on on the campaign trail are evident in this budget from the teacher raises to the school safety money to the money that he wants to use to combat gangs and um, deal with undocumented immigrants um, obviously some of those policies are things we wouldn't agree with and other those others of those things are things we would agree with uh, but but points for honesty points for honesty um, so we will follow that as it continues to develop um, let's wrap up the show with a quick discussion of the Democratic convention last weekend and Luke can you kind of just set the scene for us of what happened at convention and uh, what the significance of electing new leaders to the party is? Well, when people talk about Democratic conventions, I think the only way they would have like pierced people's consciousness at all uh, would be the like really contentious ones where, you know, we've had insurrections of different elements of the party trying to overthrow folks and like high drama and stuff like that. And luckily, as far as the like vibe within the Georgia state Democratic Party, that hasn't really happened very often. And, you know, usually there's always some, you know, slight angry opposition to what the uh, party is doing and to the like more party preferred candidates. But uh, it's usually a very small fractional thing and people who are dilettantes in the party rather than people who actually are working to uh, affect change in, in Georgia. And so to set the scene, the, the state party elects its leadership from the state committee. And everyone on the state committee is, uh, you know, people who are chosen by their counties to go represent the county uh, 
the local county party at the state convention. And so like this body meets several times throughout the year and talks about like how much money the party's been raising and what big initiatives they're working on and, you know, meet candidates and stuff like that. And, you know, this time we just elected our, uh, our full executive board, uh, which will be in office for four years. Uh, as you highlighted, the officers are definitely younger than the last crop. Uh, some people got reelected. Most notably, Dubose Porter uh, did not run for reelection. And instead, our, our vice chair, Nakima Williams, who's also a state senator, is now our chair. Um, I'm really excited. It's a lot of new blood. Very few people ran for re-election. Uh, so it's a lot of new people. And I think that that's a, a good thing after the really exciting cycle that we had, that we have some people who are, have fresh ideas and are really interested in taking the party forward and can bring a new perspective on things. Um, uh, Nakima Williams is talking about... Uh, trying to invest more in our county parties and have a grant program that people can uh, ask the DPG for funds for projects they want to do and, you know, improve communication uh, with the uh, county parties and the state uh, state committee. And I think that are, you know, all those things will be good because um, the Georgia state party could really do more to, help advance the Democratic Party in Georgia, especially in the off-seasons, because Georgia's just too big of a state, and we have too many county parties that don't have enough resources to do the jobs that they really need to be doing year-long. And so having the party be a strong force in uh, pushing the Democratic message in the off-years, I think, will be really, really important to uh, making Georgia a more competitive state politically. Well, and a lot of these people are... Uh, who are newly in leadership positions are drawn from, you know, winning and effective campaigns in the 2018 cycle, right? I mean, I'm thinking of state rep B. Win. Yeah, B. B. Win ran a really great race, a very competitive Democratic primary with a lot of great candidates. Um, and she won pretty impressively. Uh, we have Ted Terry, who's the mayor of Clarkston, who uh, won a pretty competitive race. And Kima Williams herself, uh, took over Vincent Fort Sieg in a pretty competitive primary. So uh, many of the people who are on the new uh, Democratic Party of Georgia board have election experience. They have legislative experience, executive experience. And so I think it's a it's a real good uh, slate of officers. And I'm excited to see what uh, they will be able to do and, um, you know, hoping for progress from from that body. So what's next for the party? What's next on the to-do list for all of uh, these people who have been recently elected? Is it is it planning for 2020? Is it sort of organizing outside of election season? What What's sort of like the day-to-day work like? I think really the, the task of the party should be building up the infrastructure and training people so that we are ready for the 2020 cycle. Uh, everyone at these meetings in leadership or just committee members say and believe that Georgia is not the next battleground state, that we are a battleground state. And so we need to act like it. And if we are, then we need to start thinking about having some year round offices open, doing political contact work all the time and not just during uh, election years. And, you know, more importantly, I think this is going to be 
the real measure of success for this new executive board is if they can start making inroads in places other than Atlanta because, uh, you know, I live in Athens and I'm one of the few people who are an officer in a caucus of the Democratic Party of Georgia that is not a resident of Metro Atlanta or the greater Metro Atlanta area. Um, and, you know, the state is much, much bigger than Atlanta. And obviously, many of our supporters and many of our votes and many of our donors come from Atlanta. So I'm not advocating ignoring Atlanta. But there's definitely some more love that could be given to the areas outside of Atlanta. And I think treating, you know, a vote outside of Atlanta as being worth the same, if not more, than a vote from inside Atlanta I th- will be the way that we will be able to make progress in the state and hear, get our ideas out there and get uh, our values spoken about better. And I, I think another thing is, too, is not ignoring the contributions of our electeds outside of Atlanta and learning to communicate and partner with them in a more uh, substantive and deeper way, I think, is the path forward rather than, you know, trying to be a, a monolithic state party uh, telling everyone what's going to happen from Atlanta. One newsy thing that we haven't really reacted to yet on this podcast is Chuck Schumer's decision to offer the opportunity to Stacey Abrams to give the Democratic response to President Trump's State of the Union address. Uh, this is all going to happen, both Trump's speech and Abrams' speech on next Tuesday night. Um, so we are going to record and give you instant reactions to those when those happen. Uh, but this is a pretty big stage to put Stacey Abrams on. Uh, what was your reaction to seeing that news that she is given the state of the union response? I would say I was pretty surprised, uh, upon my initial reaction to it, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Poor Chuck Schumer. Half of his caucus is like running for president right now. And, even Nancy Pelosi has a couple members running for president. And I just like would not know how you pick someone to do this speech. This seems like a really neutral choice since Abrams probably is not running for president uh, this cycle. And this presents them with an opportunity to have a really strong speaker uh, who has some legitimate complaints about how the government's been run, uh, you know, give, a great speech. I'm sure Abrams will give a really powerful, really, uh, you know, good speech. And it's the polar opposite of what Trump will be. Um, and I think as far as, you know, keeping, keeping a, a neutral line on 2020, this was a good choice for them. And Abrams will be a good representation of, uh, the party and what we believe. Yeah. And I think to me, it sort of confirms that Schumer convinced Abrams to run for Senate. And take on absolutely uh, i will be very shocked at this point if she she does not run for senate i mean if she waited and ran for governor you know you they i mean they, i guess they just repurpose all of the ads they ran in 2018 and they ran against john ossoff tying uh every georgia democrat to nancy pelosi and chuck schumer but this certainly puts her uh on a national stage with national political figures um, in a way that probably would not be super helpful if her ultimate goal was just to be governor of Georgia. Um, so, well, we we know her ultimate goal is to be president because she's told us. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, this is. I mean, I guess she believes that's advancing her towards that goal. Yeah, um, the road to the White House now runs through the Senate and not 
through the governor's mansion. Most no, likely. obviously the road to the White House runs through the State of the Union response. Look at the track record. Yes, President Marco Rubio, Pre- President Bobby Jindal. Oh, I loved the Jindal administration. <laughs> yes, the Jindal administration was so great. It was so great we won't even remember it. Um. So <laughs> that raises an important thing, though. Is there a chance that Abrams can blow this? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> The only, okay, there's in my lifetime, in my remembrance, there is one person that took a good stay of the union response. It's Barack Obama. Really? I don't That's remember it. his. He did, exactly. That's why it was good. <laughs> if you remember it, it was bad. I just, I want to re-air my endless criticism of big state of the whatever responses and Joe that is, the third even did your idea kyle which was to go and do it before a crowd and even that didn't really turn out that great yeah i could have done it better than him i this is my if if you haven't heard this rant before it's my annual state of the state rant that democrats give the state of the state response in the senate press room and that the State of the Union responses in recent years, one of them was given by former Kentucky Governor Steve Bashir in, uh, in a diner in the per- <laughs> in the Pearly Gates Diner, where everybody looked like they were seconds away from death. Um, I, I for- <laughs> as did he as did he. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it wasn't Joe Kennedy's was given in on like the floor of a manufacturing facility. Yeah. Which is like I mean that's it's definitely one of the better ones, but it's still terrible. But like yeah, and then low bar. A lot of the Republican ones were given just like in front of empty rooms in like houses in golf course neighborhoods. Like they looked yeah. like very nice places. Um yeah, like do it in front of a crowd, show that you have a group of people that care about what you have to say and have some energy to it. Um, yeah. You know, Chuck Schumer already kind of put Stacey Abrams on the spot saying that uh, he was excited to see Donald Trump open up for the main event, which was Stacey Abrams speech. So we'll see if she lives up to that. I mean, I think she'll give a great speech. You know, we, you and I and everybody involved in this podcast and everybody who cares about, Georgia politics has watched her give a ton of speeches over recent, over the last couple of years. And she gives great speeches. Um, yeah, I suspect she will be really good in this venue. And I just from like watching her for years, I think this will be a unique one. I'm not going to roll the dice yet and say it's going to be like the greatest day of the union response ever, but I kind of feel like she will not do the typical thing. I don't know if that means that she's going to be before a crowd or if she's going to be more um, confrontational with it. I mean that in a good way. Like, like I think I think she's going to be very direct in addressing her complaints with this administration. And so, you know, in, in, in some way, I think that might really work. All right. Well, we are going to uh, get pumped for that speech and see if Abrams meets everybody's expectations. Um, And then we are going to react to it and to Trump's State of the Union uh, on next Tuesday night. So you're going to hear from us shortly after those speeches on Tuesday. But for now, we are going to leave it there. Uh, So Luke, thanks for coming on the podcast. Always a pleasure to be here. You are uh, a partner in this production. So... You kind of have to be majority partner most, most of the time. All right, we're we're just gonna end it there. All right, bye guys. Bye.
that's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all. Thank you.